It's Tuesday, the 27th of February, and welcome to another edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Won. South Korea's defense ministry has revealed that it believes North Korean factories are running at full capacity to produce arms for Russia in its war in Ukraine. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Last weekend marked the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine. For our in-depth today, we examine the current state of the conflict and what lies ahead. And coming up for Hallyu Highlights, we look at K-pop's influence in the global music scene as assessed in recent end-of-year charts and reports. We have all that and more for today's Korea 24. Defence Minister Shin Won-shik disclosed to reporters on Tuesday that the ministry believes North Korea is operating factories to produce munitions shipments to Russia and that these facilities are running at full power where most others are unable to run. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, jung So it seems the ties and the cooperation between Pyongyang and Moscow is deepening. What's the latest we have on the exchanges and activities? So at a meeting with reporters, Defense Minister Shin said since last August, only about 30% of North Korean arms factories are operating due to insufficient electricity and raw materials. But those that manufacture weapons and shells for Russia are running at full capacity. Over 6,700 containers have been transported from the north to Russia, enough to carry about 3 million rounds of 152mm artillery shells or 500,000 rounds of 122mm artillery shells. With the two types likely mixed in the delivery, millions of North Korean munitions could have been sent to Russia. Russia is believed to provide North Korea with food and other necessities in return. The minister said that containers entering the north from Russia the past six months were nearly 30% larger than those traveling in the opposite direction. So food likely accounted for the largest portion, leading to food price stabilization within the regime. The minister forecasts an increase in Moscow's transfer of satellite and other technologies amid its rising dependency on North Korean munitions. As for Pyongyang's increasing cruise missile tests, Shin said the military is keeping an eye on developments as the regime could conduct another provocation along the front lines. The minister added that North is focusing on advancing its surface-to-ship missiles to enhance naval power to catch up with the South. Yes, we'll be talking more about the second anniversary of the Ukraine-Russia war for our in-depth today. That's coming up later in this show. Let's turn now to the latest in the standoff between the government and the medical community. The number of trainee doctors who have submitted their resignations still remains at nearly 10,000 as their walkout in protest of the government's plan to increase the medical school admissions quota entered its eighth day. So what's the latest? So according to the health ministry on Tuesday, inspections of 99 major teaching hospitals found 9,909 or 80.6% of resident doctors have submitted their resignations. None of them were accepted. Of the trainee doctors who submitted resignations, 8,939 or 72.7% have left their jobs. Disruptions in medical services at hospitals rise as the walkout continued for over a week. Newly admitted patients at general hospitals decreased by 24% reportedly since the collective action. Surgeries dipped around 50% at 15 general hospitals. 
Meanwhile, the government filed a complaint against key officials of the Korea Medical Association for allegedly violating the nation's medical law. That's right. According to the government and police on Tuesday, the health ministry filed a complaint against five officials, including members of the KMA's emergency committee. The first time the government is taking such response measures against the group. The ministry believes the five KMA officials instigated and abetted the collective action by endorsing the training doctor's move and providing them with legal assistance. The ministry is also said to have stated that the collective action hindered operations of the training hospitals where the trainee doctors who walked off their jobs work. And President Yoon sang yeol made a comment on this situation as well today. He stressed that health care reform cannot be subject to negotiation or compromise. That's right. The president made the remark on Tuesday during a meeting with mayors and provincial governors on local autonomy at the top office that the collective action is an unjustifiable act that threatens the lives and safety of the people. He dismissed calls to delay the quota expansion, adding that even if med schools start the hike now, it will be 10 years before the number of doctors begin to rise. The president stressed the government is pursuing health care reform with the utmost urgency to save the people and the region. Yoon said if a nation fails to provide timely and appropriate treatment to people, People in need, it is not fulfilling its constitutional duty. Let's run through some other headlines for today as well, starting with the fact that the Korea Football Association has picked Hwang Sonong, who heads the national under 23 football team, as the interim head coach of the national team. Can you tell us more? The KFS national team committee unveiled the selection on Tuesday. Hwang will guide the team in the second round of the FIFA World Cup 26 Asian qualifiers. South Korea faced Thailand in the qualifiers on March 21st and 26th. Hwang will also have to manage the under-23 team in the Asian Football Confederation U23 Asian Cup, which will kick off in Qatar in April. South Korea is in Group B with Japan, China and the United Arab Emirates. Top three teams are on a ticket to the 2024 Paris Olympics, so his got his hands full with two teams to manage. Meanwhile, the Seoul Metropolitan Government announced a plan for a major remodeling of the city's southwest, which includes renaming and enhancing international flight operations at Kimpo International Airport. Can you tell us more? According to officials on Tuesday, the city will push to rename the airport, most of which is located in Gangseo District, to Seoul Kimpo Airport, in line with gathered opinions from residents. Also, there are plans to recommend the Transport Ministry to expand the standard of international flight operation at the airport from the current 2,000 kilometers or less to up to 3,000 kilometers. The expansion would allow operation of additional flights to China's Guangzhou and Hong Kong from Gimpo. Singapore is also under consideration. The ruling People Power Party interim chief Han Dongun on Tuesday announced a set of campaign pledges focused on tackling climate change and promoting renewable energy sources. During the session held at a brew cafe in Songsudong, Han stressed climate policies may not immediately win votes, but it's something politicians must undertake for the country's future. The pledges announced by Han includes doubling the size of state funds set aside for climate change responses from 2.4 trillion won or 18 billion US dollars to 5 trillion won by the year 2027 to support companies that reduce greenhouse gas emissions while expanding investments in issuance of loans to promote eco-friendly activities. Meanwhile, on the other side of the political aisle, the main opposition Democratic Party on Tuesday announced plans to significantly lower household loan interest rates by excluding items 
that financial institutions unfairly pass on to customers, uh, such as the legal costs for calculating additional interest rates. That's right. The DP's policy committee announced three high interest rate burden relief measures at the National Assembly on Tuesday afternoon. In order to ease the burden of paying the principal and interest of household loans, the policy committee proposed a plan that requires banks to check whether a borrower's credit status has improved at least once every half year and disclose relevant information to those who are likely to receive an interest rate cut. It also includes measures to eradicate illegal loans by invalidating all contracts exceeding the legal maximum interest rate and doubling the reward for reporting loan sharking. In other news, business sentiment among domestic firms was estimated to be negative for the second consecutive year amid the prolonged economic downturn. Can you tell us more? So according to the Federation of Korean Industries on Tuesday, the projected business survey index, or BSI, of the top 600 companies by sales for March stood at 97, below 100 meaning pessimists outnumber optimists. The index gauging business sentiment remained below 100 for 24 consecutive months since the year 2022. The BSI for manufacturers topped 100 for the first time since April 2022 at 100.5, thanks to rosy outlooks for machinery, equipment, automobiles, and oil refining industries. The index for non-manufacturing sectors like restaurants, wholesalers, and retail businesses, 93.5, below 100 for the third straight month. Meanwhile, Trade Minister Andokun has asked for continued cooperation from the U.S. to address Seoul's concerns over the U.S.'s Inflation Reduction Act and subsidies under the CHIPS Act. The minister made the request in a phone call with U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo on Tuesday, saying bilateral relations developed into a high-tech industry and technology alliance. He asked for cooperation to address Seoul's concerns on major pending trade issues related to the U.S. CHIPS Act and IRA regulations, which require EV and EV component makers to eliminate critical mineral and material sources from China, which is designated as a foreign entity of concern, in order to qualify for a tax credit. The two sides agreed on the need to swiftly hold the trilateral meeting of the trade ministers, with Japan included, as agreed in the tripartite summit last August. And finally, North Korea has reportedly sent a delegation to Russia for the World Youth Festival set to begin Friday. What do we know? So according to the regime's state-run KCNA, a delegation of the Central Committee of the North Korean Socialist Patriotic Youth League, headed by Chairman Moon Chul, departed Pyongyang on Monday to take part in the 2024 World Youth Festival. The Russian embassy in Pyongyang said via social media that Russian ambassador Alexander Matsugora accompanied the delegation as well. The two sides will hold discussions on exchanges between the nation's youth organizations during that festival, held in Sirius from March 1st to 7th. A youth team of the North's women's volleyball club left Pyongyang for Vladivostok on Monday as well for a series of friendly matches and joint training camps with their Russian counterparts. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index slid 22.03 points or 0.83% on Tuesday to close at 2,625.05. The tech-heavy Kosdaq dipped 13.65 points or 1.57% to close at 853.75. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 0.11 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,331.1. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr.
time now for Global News Roundup, where we look beyond Korea to talk about headlines from around the world. Joining us in the studio for that is our KBS World Radio news editor, Koo Hee-jin. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, Zhang. First, we return to the war in Gaza. Israel would be willing to halt its war on Hamas during the upcoming Muslim fasting month of Ramadan if a deal is reached to release some of the hostages held by the militants. That's according to the United States President Joe Biden. What can you tell us? Well, negotiators from the US, Egypt and Qatar are working on a a framework deal under which Hamas would free some of the dozens of hostages it holds in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners and a uh, six-week halt in fighting. During the temporary pause, negotiations would continue over the release of the remaining hostages. Biden was speaking on NBC talk show Late Night with Seth Meyers. There was no immediate Israeli reaction to Biden's comments released for publication early Tuesday. The start of Ramadan around the 10th of March is seen as an unofficial deadline for a ceasefire deal. The month is a time of heightened religious observance and dawn-to-dusk fasting for hundreds of millions of Muslims around the world. Biden said Monday that he hopes a ceasefire deal could take effect by next week. Still, Biden did not call for an end to the war, which was triggered by the deadly Hamas attack on southern Israel on the 7th of October. Reuters and other media reports say that Hamas is also considering the deal, which would include an exchange of Palestinian prisoners for Israeli hostages hostages at a ratio of 10 to 1. Uh, What are some of the details of the proposed draft? Well, according to Reuters, under the proposed ceasefire, uh, hospitals and bakeries in Gaza would be repaired. 500 aid trucks would enter into the Strip each day and thousands of tents and caravans would be delivered to house the displaced. Uh, The draft also states Hamas would free 40 Israeli hostages, including women, children under under 19, elderly over 50, and the sick, while Israelis would release around 400 Palestinian prisoners and will not rearrest them. Uh, the Gaza truce appears, uh, uh, truce talks appears to be the most serious push in weeks to halt the fighting in the battered uh, Palestinian enclave and secure the release of uh, Israeli and foreign hostages. Mediators have ramped up efforts to secure a ceasefire in Gaza in the hopes of heading off an Israeli assault in the Gaza city of Rafah, where more than a million displaced people are sheltering the southern on, at the southern edge of the enclave. Yes, we'll continue to watch the developments in the ceasefire negotiations and keep our listeners updated. In the meantime, let's turn now to Sweden, because Sweden has cleared its final hurdle to join NATO breaking 200 years of maintaining neutrality. Can you tell us more? Well, Hungary's uh, parliament uh, overwhelmingly approved Sweden's bid to join NATO on Monday, clearing the way for the Nordic nation's accession to the alliance. Uh, This comes amid nearly two years of intense negotiations and deals a geopolitical blow to Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, The Nordic nation applied to join the defence alliance after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022. All NATO members are expected to help in a, an ally, help an ally uh, whenever it comes uh, under attack. 
Yes, this is, of course, an ironic twist, given that uh, Russia launched its war against Ukraine, in part due to the alliance's expansion in Eastern Europe along Russia's border. Indeed, since Russia launched its invasion two years ago, Finland became the 31st NATO member last year, adding some 1,300 kilometres or 830 miles to the alliance's frontier with Russia. Sweden will formally uh, join the Defence Alliance, becoming the 32nd member after it submits its instrument of accession with the United States government, which is the depository for the North Atlantic Treaty. And finally, many of us watched as the private lunar lander Odysseus touched down on the moon but sideways late last week. (laughs) Well, Odysseus was, of course, not alone. Before Odysseus, Japan's moon sniper lander also tipped over during its descent and landed on its nose on January 19th. So it was silent for much of February, but Japan's space agency said Monday that it responded to a signal from Earth. So, can you elaborate? Well, according to AP and CNN, Japan's space agency JAXA called the signal uh, that was received late uh, Sunday night a miracle because the probe was not designed to survive the weeks-long lunar night when temperatures can fall to minus 170 degrees Celsius or minus 274 degrees Fahrenheit. The craft, a smart lander for investigating moon or SLIM, made a pinpoint touch down on the 20th of January, making Japan the fifth country to successfully place a probe on the moon. But the probe, as you said, landed rather the wrong way up, with its solar panels initially unable to see the sun and had to be turned off within hours. Slim regained power on the eighth day after its landing when it got the uh, sun. For several days, Slim collected uh, geolo- uh, geological da- data from moon lo- rocks before going back into hibernation in late January to wait out another lunar night. JAXA said Sunday's communication was kept short because it was still lunar midday and Slim was at a very high temperature, which is, was about 100 uh, degrees Celsius. JAXA is now preparing to make contact again when the vehicle has cooled down. That's all for our Global News Roundup today. Heejin, thank you for bringing us those stories. Thank you. This is Matt Dalton, goalie for Anyang Hala. You're now listening to Korea 24. February 24th, 2022, Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Two years later, an end to the biggest war in Europe since World War II is nowhere in sight. Some 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed since the invasion, according to President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine, uh, who said that last Sunday. He also claimed that 180,000 Russian soldiers have been killed during this time as well. As the war entered its third year, Zelensky promised victory against the Kremlin and the Group of Seven Nations reaffirmed unwavering support for Kyiv. 
Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin is taking a hardline stance, saying there would be no peace in Ukraine until the Kremlin realises its goals. To talk more about where the war currently stands and where it's heading, we're joined on the line by two guests. First, we have Dr. Pong Young-shik, Research Fellow at the Yonsei, Institute, uh, Yonsei University Institute for North Korean Studies. Dr. Bong, hello. Uh, hello. Thanks for inviting me. And we also have with us uh, Kenneth Wilson, Professor of Russian Politics at Dongguk University here in Korea. Professor Wilson, hello to you too. Hello, thank you for having me. So, Dr. Bong, let us start with you. For our listeners, can you bring us up to speed on the state of the war? How is the war still going after two years? Yes, the war has been going on for two years since its outbreak on February 22nd, 2022. Uh, initially, the key held firm, uh, uh, despite the uh, prospect that the Russia's invasion was uh, 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 estimated to be very easy to be achieved. But uh, the Ukrainian uh, government and the military held firm, uh, even after Russia seized uh, uh, Mariupol. Um, but the, uh, the uh, counter-offensive taken by the uh, Ukrainian uh, military uh, last summer uh, failed to achieve the strategic goal uh, to change the uh, tide of the war to decisively uh, to its favor. So uh, the war's third year opens with uh, Ukraine on the defensive and struggling to hold the lines uh, as uh, the city of uh, um, Avdivka uh, fell uh, to the Russian military. So uh, the Ukraine is uh, complaining about the uh, you know uh, dwindling support from the outside, especially the uh, ammunition. The United States uh, has not uh, passed the uh, new resolutions to supply additional ammunitions to uh, Ukraine uh, military. Now, although the Senate passed a, a bill uh, to provide a massive amount of assistance to Ukraine, but the bill has to be passed uh, through the House of Representatives, which is dominated by the reluctant Republican members. And uh, Ukraine's uh, uh, morale has been on decline because the manpower is dwindling and there is a great sense of exhaustion among Ukraine uh, population. Yes, Dr. Bong, thank you for bringing us up to speed on that. Professor Wilson, uh, what have Russia and Ukraine gained and lost over the course of these two years? And what do the two sides still want? How are they still fighting still after two years? Well, they're still fighting because neither side has um, a decisive offensive capability. So as Dr. Bong just told us, the Russians tried to take Kiev in 2022 and failed. And then in 2023, Ukraine's counteroffensive failed. So we broadly have a stalemate, but both sides still think they can win. They're not interested yet in peace negotiations, so they keep fighting. Um, as for what they've gained... Um, <laughs> I think very little. I think the past two years have been overwhelmingly negative for both Russia and Ukraine. So for Ukraine, the war has been a catastrophe at the human level (coughs) with very high casualties. Also, um, a lot of its infrastructure has been ruined and the country's economy. Um, If there's a positive for Ukraine, maybe it's that national identity and national unity in Ukraine have got stronger, although at a very high price. Also, 
Ukraine may benefit geopolitically in the long run. So U- Ukraine basically is part of the West now. It's going to join the EU at some point in the future. They will also move closer to the West in security terms. So perhaps Ukraine will benefit geopolitically in the long run. Um, Russia has also lost a lot. So Russia started this war because Putin wanted to keep Ukraine in Russia's sphere of influence. But Russia has completely lost Ukraine now. Ukraine is moving towards the West, and in, in Ukraine, understandably, they hate Russia now. <clears throat> also, Russia's strategic position has weakened. So NATO has got significantly stronger because Finland and Sweden are joining. Military expenditure has also increased throughout Europe. Putin didn't want any of these things, and geopolitically, his invasion has backfired um, On top of that, Russia's economy is heavily sanctioned. Um, His military has taken very heavy losses. Um, Russia, perhaps the only positive for Russia is it has gained some territory, but this territory is mostly being destroyed by the war. It's largely uninhabitable. And they've taken hundreds of thousands of casualties in, in securing this land. So I think for both countries, it's overwhelmingly negative with very mm. few positives. Right, Professor Pong. Uh, Professor yes. Wilson has said that overwhelmingly negative for both sides. Would you agree with that assessment? Why the uh, two sides gained or lost over the course of two years? Yes, but uh, the loss should be uh, more decisive for Russia because uh, there's no way for Russia to be welcomed back to be part of Europe after this invasion of Ukraine uh, by the Putin government. Um, so the identity of Russia has been totally changed in the eyes of the European uh, member states. Uh, you remember that uh, after the end of the Cold War and uh, throughout the 2000s, there has been a very uh, persistent and strong effort by the so-called coalition of Western forces uh, to induce Russia uh, to join the Europe writ large. But after this uh, war uh, with Ukraine, uh, there, the door is totally shut down uh, for Russia to enter. So uh, Russia may gain some strategy military you know, gains uh, in the process of the war if the war continues. But at the end of the day, Russia is far more than uh, you know, the Putin leadership and uh, Russia's identity is no longer part of Europe. That's a huge and existential loss for Russia as a country and as a civilization. On the other hand, Ukraine has suffered a great loss. Um, one out of every three Ukrainians uh, you know, has been displaced. Over six million refugees fled Ukraine and uh, settled uh, some part of Europe. And additional uh, eight million Others had been displaced within the country of Ukraine by uh, 2022. That's uh, one out of every three Ukraine. But think of this. South Korea suffered dearly from the outbreak of the Korean War for three years, uh, from 1950 to 1953. That's a total tragedy and total destruction for South Korea. But because of the experience of the Korean War, 
South Korea joined the you know, free world and uh, began its economic development, tapping on very generous and open you know, support from the capitalist countries, uh, mainly the Western European countries, the United States and Japan, throughout the Cold War. And the South Korea's identity has been solidified mm-hmm. as a member of the free world. So Ukraine's future after this war may become quite similar to the identity obtained by South Korea after the Korean War. So I guess a, a rather uh, optimistic outlook, as long, I guess, as Ukraine uh, can survive uh, this conflict as well. Uh, meanwhile, Professor Wilson, you mentioned earlier the sanctions uh, imposed on Russia by Western countries. Uh, what impact have they had? Well, the, the sanctions have had some impact, but not enough. Um, <clears throat> the sanctions have placed a strain on Russia's economy, so Russia's oil revenues are down, direct foreign investment is down, inflation is up, growth of Russia's economy is slower than it would be without sanctions and so on, and 300 billion of Russia's central bank reserves have been frozen. Um, the sanctions have also caused shortages of some components for high-tech weapons for the Russian military, but overall, the sanctions have not seriously affected Russia's efforts on the battlefield. I mean, it, it was never realistic that sanctions would cause Russia to end the war or that sanctions would bring up a regime change in Moscow. Um, the sanctions are really intended to make it more difficult for Russia to prosecute the war, also to show how strongly the West disapproves of Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, and to make life difficult for Russia's elites. Um, But so far, there's a lot of loopholes, there's a lot of evasion, there's a lot of circumvention of sanctions going on. And the sanctions really haven't had as much effect on Russia's war effort as people in the West would have liked. Right, and of course, one of the ways it has circumvented the sanctions is that it has uh, deepened ties with North Korea since the start of the war. Uh, after the summit between uh, Putin and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un last September, Pyongyang has reportedly been supplying ammunition and ballistic missiles to Russia. Dr Bong, how significant do you think this arms supply has been uh, for Russia and what do you make of the argument that North Korea is perhaps the biggest beneficiary of the uh, Russia-Ukraine war so far? Well, North Korea has been the uh, you know, beneficiary of the uh, war between Russia and Ukraine, that's for sure. But it depends on what kind of the criteria you're going to apply to the, your assessment of North Korea's benefits. Because this is just a, a short-term you know, benefit for a very desperate uh, North Korea. It's like a shot in the arm. But if uh, North Korea is going to get out of the uh, very serious uh, trouble that it has been uh, struggling with, uh, it would require more than uh, just an arm export opportunity that has been open thanks to the war between Russia and Ukraine. What trouble do you mean, Dr. Bong? I mean, think about it. Uh, What kind of country has to depend upon export of the very conventional weapons like artillery shells in order to save its national economy? I mean, that should be the uh, last decision 
uh, if you are political leadership, you want to make in order to save your uh, failed economy. You are selling your weapons to save your economy. But uh, that's not the last you know, decision uh, made by the North Korean leadership, but it was the first and very welcoming development for Kim Jong-un government of uh, North Korea. And the Russia situation is also dire, too. Uh, we can make this interpretation uh, from the uh, military cooperation between the two countries. Russia, the former Soviet Union, used to be the rival of the United States and the, one of the biggest, mightiest military powers in the world. Now Russia depends upon military uh, weapon imports from countries like North Korea. It's not like Russia is getting you know, ICBMs or nuclear bombs from North Korea. It, has, it, it depends upon North Korea for simple conventional weapons in order to sustain its war effort against the Ukraine. So, yes, they are helping each other in this situation, but this is not a very positive development for Russia and North Korea in the broader uh, perspective of the situation. Okay, let's look ahead now as well then. Professor Wilson, the biggest question I think on everyone's mind is how does this uh, situation end? Uh, Where do you think the war is headed this year and how long do you expect the war to last? So most um, military analysts say it's unlikely that the front lines will move much this year. Um, and that the war will continue into 2025, again, because neither side has a decisive offensive capability. So at the moment, as Dr. Bong mentioned, Russia is on the offensive. Ukraine is defending. The Russians just took the town of Avdivka. But Russia doesn't really have the capacity, we think, to launch another major offensive. So it's likely to try to grind out small advances. Ukraine, it's a difficult time for them. They're low on ammunition. Morale is low. They're losing some territory. Ukraine needs to regroup to rebuild its military, and it's likely to continue to concentrate on defense for most of the year, trying to inflict heavy casualties on the Russians as the Russians try to advance. Um, The war is likely to continue like this, So long as Ukraine keeps receiving adequate support from the West, that's the key for them. If that support ends, then things could get very bad for Ukraine. Right. Dr. Bong, what do you think are the key factors uh, that remain in this war and how it could end? It is very likely that the uh, war will be much like the Korean War in 1950s between the two Koreas uh, that lasted for three years. Yes, uh, Ukraine suffered great loss. Uh, President Zelensky for the first time officially admitted uh, that uh, about uh, 3,100 so- Ukraine soldiers died, uh, which is uh, far smaller than the estimate, uh, estimate rendered by the Biden administration of the United States, uh, saying that close to uh, 70,000 Ukrainians uh, have been killed in the battlefield and uh, approximately 100,000 to uh, 120,000 have been wounded. But uh, remarkably, according to the uh, recent poll uh, survey, opinion uh, survey, um, uh, it shows that uh, 90% of the Ukraine population believe they will win the war, and as long as they have the support from 
the allies and the uh, NATO member countries, uh, uh, you know, reconfirm their uh, support for war efforts of the Ukraine. Uh, because Ukrainians are recognized that the war already started in 2014 uh, when they ousted that uh, President Viktor Yanukovych, uh, who was close to Russia. And when uh, the Revolution of Dignity happened, Russia seized Crimea in violation of the Budapest Agreement. And the Minsk Protocol failed to prevent uh, the military aggression by Russia. So in the minds of Ukraine uh, population, it has to be stopped in a fundamental way. Otherwise, there will be a possibility of the another military action uh, taken by Russia in the name of the protection of Russian population inside the, uh, the territory of Ukraine. So there is a very rock solid uh, determination among Ukraine population and soldiers uh, to defend themselves mm. against the Russia's aggression. Uh, so there is a hope that, that there will be, uh, you know, diplomatic effort that can be really effective to help realize this the bottom line demand of the Ukraine uh, population and their government. Professor Wilson, how much do you think uh, this depends on the results of the U.S. presidential election as well? Well, um, of course, we don't know what will happen, but everybody is very worried that if Trump comes back, um, the situation could change, that support, American support to Ukraine would be reduced or even ended. And Trump, Trump said something that, you know, if he becomes president, he'll end the war in a day or something like that. Now, he's never explained what he means by that. And his, his lack of commitment in the past to NATO is also very worrying. Um, I mean, we really don't know. I mean, that's, that's, that's at the end of this year. That's a long time for Ukraine and Russia to keep fighting before Trump comes in. But it is a big concern. And, you know, the European leaders, Macron has been saying just, just yesterday, that Europe has to step up so that even if America withdraws its support, um, the European countries have to maintain sufficient support for Ukraine. But of course, if Trump becomes president and decides to withdraw support, it would be a very, very serious blow for, for Zelensky, for, for Ukraine. Yeah, I'd like to quickly add two points to Professor Wilson's remark. One, Trump, as a political leader, does not have the control over United States military assistance and financial assistance to Ukraine until the election day, which is November 5th. President Biden has the control as the president of the United States and commander-in-chief of the U.S. military until then. And uh, you're talking about U.S. support for the next uh, eight months, which is uh, quite a long time uh, for the United States to sustain its support. And... The United States government is not only composed of the White House, but it also has a Congress. So Congress may take independent steps uh, in contrast to whatever, uh, you know, possibly uh, the President Donald Trump may make uh, after he win the uh, November presidential election. So there is a room to maneuver for the United States uh, to, you know, sustain its support for Ukraine. 
And finally, Dr Bong, very briefly, what does the prolonged war mean for the Korean Peninsula? We talked about the deepening ties between Russia and North Korea earlier. How could this also affect South Korea? And how does South Korea uh, position itself with its international partners on matters related to this as well? There used to be an argument that a country has to make distinction between pursuit of concrete national interest and pursuit of basic human rights and universal values. But the experience of the war in Ukraine and the witnessing uh, what uh, Russia's aggression uh, you know, caused uh, to the destruction of a country uh, helped countries like uh, South Korea to realize that the distinction is no longer valid in the contemporary global uh, security and politics. So the decisions uh, that has, have to be made by countries like South Korea have become simpler and more straightforward. Well, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking to uh, Dr. Bong Young-sik from the Yonsei University Institute for North Korean Studies and Professor Kenneth Wilson from Dongguk University as well. Thank you both for your time today. You're welcome. We continue on now to our weekly feature, Hallyu Highlights, where we delve into the latest from the Korean entertainment world. And we do that with the help of our contributor, Bernie Cho, founder and president of the Seoul-based creative agency, DFSB Collective, and he's back once again from L.A. to join us here in the studio. Bernie, hello. It's great to have you back with us. It's good to be back. It's surprisingly a little cold in here for some reason. So, yeah, everyone's all bundled up. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> I've actually got a scarf on. Uh, I do feel a bit cold today. I think that's what you're referring to. Uh, but, yes, uh, welcome back. I uh, hope the cold weather, uh, you're dealing with that okay and the jet lag as well. Yeah, a little of both and all of it, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's get struck in. Uh, so we begin with a couple of interesting end-of-year charts and reports that have come out recently, perhaps a little late, seeing as we're at the end of February already, but these things often happen like that. Uh, let's start with the IFPI, the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry. They recently released their year-end charts based on global sales statistics, and even with the K-pop giants BTS on break and Blackpink taking a breather as well, K-pop and K-pop artists not only made their mark, but also put their mic stand firmly on the global stage. First, Bernie, can you tell us about the IFPI Global Artist Chart and how many K-pop artists made the top 20 this year? Yeah, so for those of you, probably many of you who don't know what the IFPI is, I think the easiest way to describe them is they're essentially the FIFA of the music industry. Okay. And so when they come out with the rankings, that's what everyone just drops everything, looks at it, stares at it, and just goes, wow. I made it or worse, I didn't make it. Mm. But this was the year that I think a lot of industry people, particularly in the West, um, you know, there were definitely a lot of naysayers, maybe even go so far to say some haters who are like, well, now that BTS is in the military and doing their time in the uh, in the service, that this K-pop thing is going to maybe slow down or, or even better die down. If anything, uh, K-pop came back bigger, better, stronger. And yes, you know, obviously what got a lot of uh, headlines for good reason, obvious reason, and for the right reasons was Taylor Swift was dubbed and deemed to be the 
2023 Global Recording Artist of the Year. I mean, she had a phenomenal year. But what was surprising, and this is what got a lot of people's attention worldwide, was how strong K-pop came out. Uh, K-pop pretty much um, accounted for nearly, I believe, a fourth of the top 20 global artists for the year. Uh, Coming in strong at number two was 17. At number three was Stray Kids. Now, mind you, these guys outsold Drake and The Weeknd, two Canadians, no less. Hmm. Um, And then coming in strong, this was a little surprise for me, uh, was TXT, Tomorrow and Together came in strong at number seven. And then number eight was New Jeans. And the thing is, is that um, many other Korean artists also made the list. NCT Dream also made the cut. I've made the cut as well. And so um, it was a spectacular year for K-pop. How have they made it? So this is based on sales. Sales all around the world, all year round. So, you know, again, you mentioned why, you know, this particular one came out a little late. It's a lot of data. It's a lot of numbers to crunch. But once the dust cleared, uh, it came out, you know, positively uh, in favor for K-pop. And now... Just a few hours ago, maybe last night, I should say, depending on the time zone. And again, the IFPI based in London, they also came out with and we're going to see rollouts of more and more charts over the next few weeks. But um, basically, uh, in the global singles chart, Jungkook came in at number 10, meaning he had the 10th best selling single in the world for the year. And that's a big accomplishment. Now, Unfortunately, there are a lot of fans who got really hyper and maybe even hyperventilated a little bit saying, oh, this is the first time a Korean artist has ever gotten a global, you know, single in the top 10 or top 20. But rest assured, mind you, we need a little little uh, nod to history. Uh, Psy, when he first came out with his, his <laughs> banger, Gangnam yes. Style, he too made this extremely prestigious list. But look... Um, you know, credit where credit's due. Jungkook had a phenomenal year. And so for him to come in and make it in at the number 10 spot is all the more impressive. And I hope that we see not just him, but more artists start to make this uh, a regular thing. Right. So that was the IFPI data. Meanwhile, Chartmetric, one of the uh, leading music industry data analytics services in the world as well, also came out with their first ever year in music report. And amongst the goldmine of facts and stats were some fascinating revelations on just how big K-pop has grown worldwide as well. So, Bernie, uh, what were some key takeaways from this report? Yeah, for, for full disclosure, the founder of this particular service, Chartmetric, is uh, actually a fellow Korean by the name of uh, Cho Sung-moon, no relation. Interesting, And okay. a- another little trivia is he now is one of the outside board directors for SM Entertainment. Mm. But, you know, that accolades aside, um, Chartmetric, which originally was created to sort of monitor and track how K-pop was going global has now become the international industry standard for a lot of very important uh, music industry data and analytics. And for the first time ever, they decided to throw down and put down their year in music report. And this was studied very intensively by many industry people. And again, what came out um, to many people's surprise and and for fans' delight was just how strong K-pop came out. Now, you know, obviously there are going to be a lot of people out there saying, oh, K-pop's big, you know, K-pop's popular. People really don't believe it until they see the numbers. And then more importantly, when they stack up the numbers against competition or more importantly, with context and chart metric using a variety of different analytics, uh, they were able to determine that Korea, South Korea, 
is the number three worldwide producer of global hits, right behind the U.S. and the U.K. So, you know, people sense that and suspect that, but it's been confirmed that Mm -hmm. in the top 100 artists of the year globally, Korea was the home uh, to um, the third most uh, number of artists who made that chart. And then what was surprising is they did a deep dive on, you know, two household names, Spotify and YouTube. And what was really stunning is when they did their deep dive analytics on the Spotify top 100 songs of the year, South Korea, but more importantly, K-pop came out extremely strong. K-pop is now the sixth most popular music genre on Spotify globally, number six. And and then again, they were rubbing shoulders with, you know, hip hop and rap, R&B and soul. So and, you know, the only other um, genre, uh, regional genre that's done extremely well is obviously for good reason, Latin music. But K-pop came in at number six. And then, you know, when we go to YouTube, we all know that uh, K-pop does extremely well on YouTube. But again, when they did an analysis of the YouTube Global Weekly Top 50 K-pop is now the second most popular music genre on the YouTube Global Weekly Top 50 chart for 2023. So a lot of takeaways and, you know, people are are catching a breather. But, um, you know, with the data and the stats and the facts and now the accolades all coming together and piling up, um, you know, post BTS. And let's for the record say that they are coming back. But nonetheless, without BTS, the industry actually got stronger it's incredible to see how far k-pop has come and i'm guessing this is showing all this is showing the staying power of k-pop uh, it's convincing people it's hopefully will convince more people as well you're saying yeah i mean k-pop now is not just the new pop it is the now pop music in the world and on the global stage and so yeah you know and again as impressive these statistics are we can't take away what a massive year taylor swift had sure because if it wasn't for Taylor Swift basically competing with herself, with all her different albums just <laughs> running up and down the charts, um, statistically, K-pop could have had a bigger year. But nonetheless, it was huge. It was massive. And, you know, kudos, high fives, pats on the back all around the house. Indeed. And very encouraging signs for K-pop. And long may it continue. Let's turn next, unfortunately, something a bit more controversial related to K-pop, a former member of the K-pop boy band we mentioned earlier, NCT, and K-pop superband Super M, Lucas. He's been sidelined for nearly two years after a series of controversy forced him to step away from the spotlight for a self-imposed period of self-reflection and isolation from celebrity circuit. But now, just over the past few days, there are signs that he's preparing for a comeback. So, Bernie, what are we seeing at the moment? What are these indicators that we're seeing? Well, so for me, it's interesting because, you know, I, I think we've talked about it before and unfortunately we may end up talking about it, you know, um, in the future. But uh, in Korea, particularly with not just K-pop stars, but Hallyu stars, um, the heat and the scrutiny and the attention they get to stay and be perfect is 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 overwhelming. I mean, unfortunately, we've heard of some tragedies, but more importantly is I think the fact that um, if you become a star and a celebrity or, you know, in this case, an idol, um, you can get real big, real fast. But oh, my goodness, if you crash, you crash hard, you get canceled. And so the reason I slipped this story in is because, you know, I'm a big believer um, of second chances. And what's interesting about this particular artist is 
not so much he wants a second chance. Obviously, I think a lot of artists do, but the way they're going about it. Um, this is a, you know, one of the most popular artists uh, at SM Entertainment. And when the scandals broke, and, you know, these are quite easy to find on the Internet, so I don't have to, you know, dig it up. Um, but the point being is, is that um, not just the company, but more importantly himself, he took full responsibility. And so, you know, he was sidelined. He wasn't necessarily kicked out. He quit. And and so usually when an artist goes basically into hiding, um, you rarely see them again, unfortunately, because the heat and the scrutiny of not just fans, but anti-fans is, like I said, it's just overwhelming. What is interesting is the fact that now that two years has, you know, um, moved on, there are signs that he is preparing for a comeback and many um, fans. Um, he still has a lot of fans out there hoping that it's a solo comeback. And what he did is very different. What's fascinating and interesting about this particular um, sort of comeback, and I don't know if we need to put parentheses or exclamation points or whatever sort of you know hand signals, I think it's going to happen. Um, two things came out that got um, a lot of netizens curious, interested, and, and maybe even a little bit subtly excited was number one, um, he opened his own uh, Twitter account. It's hard for me to say formerly known as or X, but yes, whatever we call or used to call Twitter, he's opened that account and already he's got nearly half a million followers. That's a good sign. But what I was really impressed by was, you know, obviously, you know, he's huge vis-a-vis -vis through YouTube, but instead of putting up a music video, uh, he put up a documentary. And, you know, instead of going through traditional media outlets of maybe, you know, doing an Oprah style, you know, mea culpa interview or jump up and down on a sofa or wherever, the fact that um, he's taking control of the narrative and the story and the optics and the fact that um, his apology is not just one of these sort of one off, um, you know, 30 second uh, short form video, TikTok videos. This is deep. This is a documentary. And. The first one was close to clocking in at 30 minutes, a showing of kind of what he's been doing, what he's been going through. And the fact that it's listed as part one makes me wonder if there's going to be part two or part three. But, you know, I, I watched part one and it was interesting to see that, um, you know, uh, one of the um, C-level executives over at SM Entertainment is in this documentary. Right. And the fact that, you know, it's almost like a behind the scenes of how to get uh, reconciliation, recover, and, and get back on track. And I, as far as I remember, I've never seen this type of um, very meditated, very paced um, sort of comeback in the sense that he's there's this sense of reconciliation and then slowly building towards, you know, um, reemerging and making a comeback. So it's interesting to watch, and I, I do hope that he manages to make a comeback, but I think a lot of lessons to be learned on the technique and the approach and then more importantly the process well we'll see what sort of reception he gets if and when he does indeed return we'll keep an eye out on that uh, let's move away from k-pop now and turn to tv and film and that's because uh, korean american actor steven yun has continued to make history with his most recent win at the sag screen actors guild awards held over in la over the weekend that's for his leading role in the Korean diaspora drama slash comedy hit Netflix series called Beef. And this is just the latest in a string of awards uh, for him and the series, right? Yes. Um, you know, in some ways, it reminds me of sort of the run that uh, Yu Yoon Jung had, you know, for um, her appearance in Minari. Mm. And again, no coincidence, Stephen Yoon was also in Minari. Mm. Now, um, 
it's been great because um, Beef, I, I love the show. I don't know if you got the chance to watch it. It's not quite a drama. It's not quite a comedy. It's a little violent. It's a little of everything, for, I think, for everyone. And I think that came out loud and clear with industry peers. Um, it's been just on a complete roll, you know, picking up awards at the Emmy Awards, the Creative Choice Awards, and now at the Golden Globes. Unfortunately, I think this is where the train stops because because it was a TV series, it's not going to go on to the Academy Awards, but nonetheless, sure. a phenomenal run. And it's not just him, but also his cohorts. For instance, Ali Wong, who is absolutely phenomenal and funny and, and, and just amazing in that. Um, she's been picking up a bunch of trophies. And we can't forget um, the director, Lee Sung Jin. Uh, Korean-American director-producer who wrote this thing. And so um, it's been a fantastic run, and it's been great to see him get up on stage on the podium and and give tributes and shout-outs to, you know, all people near and dear. Um, I found it funny because um, with some of the translations I saw in the Korean press, uh, they, for whatever reason, didn't put, you know, beef as sogogi. They put it actually, they translated it from English to Korean back into English as... um, angry person i Mm. I wish they would translate it to beef but it works but right yes that's right they they changed the korean title to yeah yeah. so they they changed it literally from english to korean and then back into english into as angry person it's a little understated um but you know as much as that was a highlight um you know one other actor who's korean who had actually won these awards Mm. was also um Celebrated, but yeah. unfortunately um, had passed away. And yeah. this is something I never thought we would see so soon. But the late actor uh, Lee Sung-gyu, who also picked up an award for Parasite at this award sure. show as well in the past. Yeah. Lee Sung-gyu, sorry. Yeah. Um, he was part of the roll call of all the celebrities who passed sure. away over the year. And so to see him side by side with icons and legends, like you know Matthew Perry, for instance, was something that um, it was touchingly sad that he, on one hand, is now recognized as being in that league, but at the same time um, uh, had, have, has passed on. And so I thought it was very nice and lovely that the uh, SAG Awards uh, gave him proper tribute and you know, props. Indeed. Beef, we should just say as well, uh, the Korean title officially was Songnan uh, Saramdul, which does mean angry people. As you said, that is the uh, retranslated title of the Korean title. Okay, that is where we're going to have to wrap it up for Hallyu Highlights. Bernie, thank you once again for sharing those updates with us, and we'll see you again next time. All good. See you then. And that's where we sign off today. Now, tomorrow, we, of course, have a Korea Book Club along with our usual daily updates and analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. ABS World Radio. Don't even think about checking that message or texting back. Did you know it only takes three seconds after a driver's attention has been diverted from the road for a crash to occur? Texting while driving is six times more likely to cause an accident than driving under the influence of alcohol. 
Sending or reading a text message causes drivers, on average, to take their eyes off the road for five seconds. When driving at 80 kilometers per hour, that means that drivers travel approximately the length of a football field with their eyes closed. At KBS World Radio, we value our listeners' safety and well-being. If you're listening to our programs while driving via your mobile device, please hit play before you set off on your journey. If you receive a message or call while driving, either use a hands-free Bluetooth device to respond or wait until you've arrived at your destination. You're not just putting your life at risk. Distracted driving accounts for approximately 25% of all motor vehicle crash fatalities. Arrive alive. Yeah. 